Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000094 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, coming to you tonight from Triple R World Headquarters at the end of the 96 line. And as we all know, the end of the 96 line is on Wurundjeri country. And I pay pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So let's be honest, um, there's been um, a fair bit of trauma floating about the place in uh, recent days and, and probably extending into weeks now. We have the seemingly daily revelations around the toxic nature of the working environment in the nation's capital, including allegations levelled at a cabinet minister that uh, don't seem to be taken seriously by the government at the moment, but I understand that that cabinet minister, according to the ABC, will be coming out and addressing those allegations tomorrow. So watch this space, but that is likely to cause more trauma for more people. We also had the release of the Royal Commission report into aged care that found, among other horrendous atrocities, that almost one in five aged care residents had faced some form of physical abuse during their time in aged care. And there are a whole bunch of other atrocities that I won't go into here, but uh, the report and the recommendations and the findings of that report um, are vitally important, but uh, the report itself is very, very, very difficult going. And now uh, we had uh, another Royal Commission report released today by the state government this time into Victoria's mental health system, in which the Royal Commissioner Penny Armitage stated that the mental health system had catastrophically failed to live up to expectations. So in my view, what all this goes to show is that successive governments of both both persuasions at all levels have failed to perform some of the core duties that we expect as a society. But it also shows that we as a society in Australia haven't cared enough to hold those governments and those systems to account. Especially when it comes to aged care, we in the Aboriginal community have pride in our elders and our elderly. And the Royal Commission clearly indicates that in fact as a society as a whole, that we don't. And there's no doubt that we live in an imperfect world where terrible things happen to good people. But what we're seeing here now across a number of systems is neglect and abuse on an industrial scale of our most vulnerable. So why do I raise these issues here on the mission? Well, of course, because these matters disproportionately affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people more than any other segment of the community. And if you sit back and think about it, you can actually shudder to think about the number of Aboriginal women, men, boys and girls who have found themselves imprisoned over the years when they should have actually been in the care of an adequate mental health system. And I could reel off examples all night, I really could. Um, But fortunately we have on the show tonight the Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar who will be joining us from the Kimberley to talk about a couple of things. Um, The ongoing rise of hate crimes that are perpetrated at people of colour, particularly Aboriginal people, at the hands of far-right groups. 
And we'll also talk about a report that was released last year that uh, it's probably the most comprehensive look at the issues confronting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in this country. So we'll talk about that. And if any of these matters um, affect you, always know that uh, Lifeline is available and there's always someone to speak to. And that number is 13 11 14. But shortly I'll be joined uh, for a much happier discussion on the oldest dated painting found in Australia thus far. So I'll be speaking to Dr Damien Finch from the University of Melbourne who we're closely with traditional owners up in the Kimberley to find that rock painting and, and deploy new techniques, new scientific techniques to actually date it. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, I won't um, pretend the putting this show together uh, week in, week out can actually be quite taxing given some of the subject matter that we, uh, we cover. Um, but one of the great privilege of broadcasting this show week in, week out is the opportunity to speak with experts that can give us an insight to just how ancient this land is and blow our minds with an understanding of how back how far back Aboriginal culture goes back in this land. And our guest, uh, first guest tonight, can speak with authority on both those things. So for the first time, traditional owners and researchers dated rock paintings in the naturalistic style to between seventeen and 13,000 years in the Kimberley using new dating technology. And it's actually Australia's oldest intact Aboriginal rock painting that was discovered and goes back to 600 generations. Now just think about that. So part of the team of researchers that made this discovery is Dr Damien Finch. Damien is a postdoctoral researcher at the School of Earth Sciences, Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne. He, along with a team of researchers, scientists and traditional owners, were able to put some numbers to this amazing piece of rock art. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, David is on the line now. David, welcome to the mission. G'day, Daniel. Now, the Kimberley region of Western Australia is well known for its rock art. Um, Let's uh, start at the beginning. How did you go about engaging with traditional owner groups to undertake the process of dating this particular piece of art? It is a key question, and we um, at, the, at the University uh, of Melbourne didn't have direct contact, but other people associated with what we now call Rock Art Australia, the philanthropic organisation that funds a lot of our work, they, they, uh, some, some of those people are, uh, are based up in the Kimberley and uh, quite close to uh, the, the uh, uh, Columbaroo. Um, the small community uh, up in the very far northwest part of the Kimberley, and uh, so they've uh, they've had uh, contact with, with people you know been living up there for for a long time. So we really that was our introduction to to the people in Balangara country, and we uh, so we had an introduction if you like, and then. Um, by showing them what we were planning to do in the very first field season that we went on in 2015, we started the process of building up trust and um, uh, until the, until they allowed us to, uh, to to work on their country and take samples. And I'm sure it was a process of uh, you know a learning a lot of things um, together. Um, describe for those that don't know, describe the, the 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 piece of art, describe its potential significance, and and describe. Um, uh, you know, what it means to the traditional owners up there and, and why it's um, such an important piece of, of rock art. 
I'll give you sort of two answers. You know why why it's important, I guess, to me as a scientist, and, and then and then I, um, I, I I wouldn't dare speak for the people up there, but but I know you know Sissy Gore Birch, who's the chair of the uh, Bellingara Aboriginal Corporation. She, she's um, you know she's she's made um, a few comments uh, uh, about how she sees the. Um, the, the value or the importance of scientists uh, working together with the traditional owners, and it's really about it's really about developing, uh, um, I guess, a communication, a way for 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 people in non-indigenous societies to, to understand more about the rock art. From my perspective, the, the things that I can speak to directly, it's we were really interested in this style of rock art because in the Kimberley, there's sort of five main styles of painted rock art that have been identified by people that have been researching the area now for, for um, you know, for, for about 30 years. And these paintings belong to the oldest style, that naturalistic style mm-hmm. uh, of, of uh, rock art. And, and, of course, you know, as uh, Sissy Gorbrecht was saying, you know, the, the, the kangaroo it, it is a really important figure, you know, that... And, and we're pretty sure it would have been important 17,000 years ago because it's certainly imp- important, um, you know, culturally uh, today as well. You, you described the, the, the five other types of... Uh, the four other types of... Um, you mentioned there were five types of... <laughs> five types of uh, rock art in, in, yeah. in, in, in the Kimberley and this one being the oldest, oldest being in the naturalistic style. What are some of the other um, styles and the, and the progression from, from naturalistic to, to later styles? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because last year, we a year ago now, we published some dates on the, the second oldest period, which is uh, called um, the Bellingar called Guion Guion. Uh, other people have other names for it, but, but, uh, but Guion or Guion Guion is the is the name we go by today, uh, and other people might know that because it used to be called the, the Bradshaw figures. But they're mm. but they're really the um, uh, highly decorated human figures with you know, some of them have just got incredibly long headdresses, yeah, tall and back. slim figures as well. Yes, yeah, yes, and incredible body decorations. You know, the sort of thing that it take hours to prepare. You know, they're holding boomerangs. They've got decorations around their around their wrists around their elbows, around their knees and ankles. and, um, and um, So it is really elaborate. And the, the fascinating thing for me was when I, when I saw that there's a, a, a researcher, Dover Walsh in Darwin, who found some old photographs uh, in, in the libraries in Western Australia and Northern Territory. And you see photographs of ceremonies, people in ceremonies in the early 1900s, and they look as though they're wearing the same sort of dress. So... Yeah. So we've got paintings that are 12,000 years old and then ceremonies in the early 20th century with people with really huge long headdresses and elaborate arm decorations and leg decorations. So, yeah, fascinating. It goes to show how strong the, the, the cultural links through time and space and how, you know, important oral history is in, within Aboriginal communities um, across Australia. Um, Let's uh, let's talk about the, the actual science and, and the technology that you use to actually date this. There were developments in radiocarbon uh, dating that um, allowed you actually to get the date of these paintings. Can you talk to that a little bit? What 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 were, what were those developments? Yeah, 
Yes, the, the, the key thing is that dating rock art is really, really, really hard. So people have been trying to do it in Australia and overseas for, um, for you know, having a good go at it for at least, uh, you know, 20, 25 years. And the reason why it's so hard, particularly in Australia, for the older styles of painting, you know, not, not the more recent ones like the Wanginas, which have got charcoal, I think, but, you know, they're the most recent style. But the older style, the, the, the paint is, uh, is a, an ochre, uh, an iron oxide, and, you know, in different sort of colours, reds, browns, to sort of purple, mulberry colours. But the, but the paint itself, there's nothing that, that we can date scientifically. There's no scientific dating technique that we can apply to the paint today. The only thing that we can do is date things that happen to be on top of the painting or underneath the painting. And then, so things like wasps' nests and, and the like. Yes, and and that's what that's what uh, I've specialised on, because there's so many wasp nests up there, and people have dated wasp nests before, but they used like in 1997, you know, the first one was reported. There's a couple. There's been another one, old date, published since then. But but so only two old dates on Kindley Rock are both from wasp nests, but they used a technique that required really big wasp nests, you know, um, and so the way the method we came up with is to date the smaller wasp nests. There's a lot more of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had uh, we had more success using radiocarbon dating of the mud in the mud, mud wasp nests because the mud contains um, tiny bits of uh, microscopic fragments of uh, of charcoal that the wasp picked up when she was collecting mud. Yeah, no, you people are, uh, are very clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I think persistence has probably got more to do with it than cleverness. You just got to keep going. You know, um, I uh, I was I was quite quite determined to do this because I'd really uh, I, I'd taken a strong interest in this art just from doing a bushwalking trip up there in 2011, and and you know how sort of country can get into your bones sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's what happened. That's what happened to me. So, <laughs> so I was curious, and, and and I didn't think that it was. Right, that we didn't know as much as I thought that we should have about this, you know, this absolutely amazing rock art. Speaking with Dr. Damien Finch about uh, the dating of the what is known to be the the oldest uh, rock paintings in existence in Australia. Uh, on that point, uh, Damien, where do these paintings rate in terms of the world scale, in terms of the oldest known artwork by humans? Do we do we have a gauge on that? Yes, yes. The the uh, we've got in Australia got some people that are really good at rock dating, you know, internationally. And there's a, a group up at the University of Wollongong who uh, are, are really good. They've been working in Sulawesi, in Indonesia, particularly in Sulawesi and Borneo, and they've uh, got some dates on rock art deep inside caves uh, using a uh, using a method that relies on you know that you can use in limestone country, which we don't have, but but they and they. they they do go back uh, over 40,000 years, 40, 45,000 years. So, and in France, they've got, uh, France and northern Spain, they've got, uh, uh, which in some ways it's similar in the sense that it's animals, you know, in a similar sort of style. But, um, and they go back to sort of, uh, you know, from 15 to sort of 35,000 years. So, 
So the so we know the fascinating thing is we know that there's older rock art in uh, Indonesia, which is only you know not sort of all that far away from Australia, particularly particularly Kimberley. when particularly the Kimberley, and particularly when the sea levels were really low twenty thousand years ago. You know, so sea levels we we could. You know, the Kimberley coastline was 300 kilometres, 300-odd kilometres closer to Timor um, 20,000 years ago. So, you know, the, the, the big divide, the water um, barriers uh, w- w- were much less back in those days. So, you know, we, we don't know. I mean, this, this is the first time we've, we've had dates on paintings from this period at all. Uh, so these are the first. So, you know, have we found the oldest one? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't think so. And maybe there's, and maybe there's I, I hope this is not true, but maybe the oldest ones are now underwater because that'd be really hard to date. <laughs> I guess... The, I guess, Damien, the only way we can really find out the truth behind these matters is to ask Keith Richards, who was there at the time. Um, <laughs> yes. He and uh, there's an, some other guy, uh, uh, Von Daniken, who, yeah. uh, yeah, who said that yeah, these were paintings of people from outer space or some, <laughs> some crazy notion like that. How, yeah, all sorts of... How confident are you that we'll actually get the technology in the future to, to explore rock paintings in Australia in a more forensic way, given the terrain here. Uh, are, there, are there technologies in the works that um, will get us over the line with, you know, finding out the, the age of some of our other pieces of art? I think so. I, I think it's, it's just really, really hard. I mean, in, in our case, um, we, we were... Um, the, my supervisor, uh, Professor Andy Gletto at, at Monash and Channel Herc, they proposed a project, uh, you know, like a, a, initially like a four-year project, and they got funding from uh, Rock Art Australia and from Australian Research Council, and, and that's when I, when I joined them when they got that funding back in 2014. And that was pretty unusual, and, and I think the reason why they were supported in that way is because they had a really solid science background in geology, in, in dating rocks, because geologists have been dating rocks and working out how old stuff is for, for a very, very long time. And, and these were, you know, some um, very... Um, these guys had a fantastic reputation in that field, one of the leading departments. So, so, so that, that was the difference, I think. You know, they got that initial funding and then we got uh, an extension to that, if you like, um, and that's and, and we're, that's why we're still going. But it takes that sort of effort. I've been going on this for, for uh, six years now, and um, and this is all I've been doing. I haven't been wow. haven't been doing anything else. So so it is difficult. But if we can continue to get that support, and, and if uh, traditional owners from from other parts of the country uh, invite us onto their country, then um, then I think we can really start to start to piece this together. We've got a method, one method at least that works. So yeah, I think we can encourage people and and, uh, and give us another, uh, you know, a second wind that, that'll carry the momentum of the project forward. Well, Dr Damien Finch, thank you so much for the work that you do. You, you've uh, shone a light on uh, what we know about uh, uh, traditional owners up in the Kimberley. Uh, continue on with the great work. I know it's very hard, Jack, just judging by some of the photos I've seen and some of the positions you have to get yourself in to get some of these samples. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. A pleasure, Daniel. Thank you very much. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, like I said at the top of the show, we are living through very tumultuous times. The global pandemic, cultures of predatory behaviour by men, the Black Lives Matter movement and the rise of an overt, out and proud white nationalist movement in this country. So how are we to make sense of all this? What can we do to unite and not divide? And what does all this mean for First Nations women and girls? Well, fortunately, on the line, we have someone that has worked tirelessly and continues to work tirelessly to help address some of these issues. Dr. June Oscar Ao is a proud Banamba woman from the remote town of Fitzroy Crossing, Western Australia's Kimberley region. She's a long-time and strong advocate for Indigenous Australian languages, social justice, women's issues, and has worked tirelessly to reduce fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. In February 2017, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the Edith Cowan University and in 2018 was awarded NAIDOC Person of the Year. She began her five-year term as Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner in 2017. And June, it is an absolute pleasure to have you back on the mission. Thank you so much for sparing your time. Uh, thank you, Daniel, and um, good to be with you, and um, good evening to your listeners. Now, the reason um, I you know, wanted to get you on the show, because I'm always wanting to get you on the show, but I saw a tweet in which you released a statement uh, last week, and um, it relates to a horrendous attack that we saw last week in Perth. And so just for people at home, let me give you a quick overview of what was alleged to have happened. And this is from The, from the Guardian. Uh, a man who had a swastika painted to his head allegedly attacked a woman with a makeshift flamethrower. Police say the 40-year-old woman and her teenage daughter were approached by the man in southeast Perth suburb of Gosnells on Saturday night. They say he yelled racial obscenities at the woman before attempting to burn her with a makeshift flamethrower made using a can of deodorant and a lighter. The woman sustained minor injuries, thankfully. Now, June, just like the rest of us, you were horrified by that attack and you did release a, a statement in which you said, to address the growing threat of racially motivated violence, we cannot take comfort in the false belief that we are isolated, that these are isolated acts committed by bad apples. If we are to respond effectively, we must acknowledge that crimes of this nature exist on a spectrum of racial, racially discriminatory thought and action, both conscious and unconscious that is widespread and pervades Australian institutions and society. So with that in mind, uh, June, is the racially motivated violence and the underlying reasons leading to that violence getting worse in this country, in your view? Well, look, I keep hearing of um, similar incidents. Uh, whilst I cannot um, comment um, in more detail around this particular incident in Western Australia, um, because of, um, you know, it, it is a legal case that's being pursued by the lady and her daughter. Um, you know, all I can add that racially motivated attack is, is not only a physical assault, it is an attempt to terrorise people for who they are and an mm. attempt to undermine the shared values that hold our democracy together. So, you know, it's sad that we continue to hear of these experiences, but there's a lot to, re you know, to remain positive about in our democracy. 
I think I think you're right. I think there is there is obviously more things that that divide us. I'm sorry that unite us than divide us. But one of the, one of my observations over recent years, in particular. Uh, June is that uh, there does seem to be a more of an overt movement now, particularly amongst young men and, and white nationalist movements, to actually not even cover up the fact that they are Nazis and that the fact that they are actually out and proud and white supremacist. Is, that's, um, is that something that you've observed um, over recent years as well? Well, look, we, we must acknowledge that crimes of this nature exist on a spectrum of racially discriminatory thought and action, uh, both conscious and, and unconscious, and um, that, that it is widespread and pervades Australian institutions and society, sadly. Yeah, we saw that a couple of years ago in the in the Senate, where there was a movement uh, by uh, Pauline Hanson that was supported by the government, that uh, the movement was, it's OK to be white. And so we're seeing that these attitudes that have gradually pervading, pervading their way through uh, institutions like the Australian Parliament, but also through our police forces and, and through our justice system. Now, in a, in a perfect world, every justice system, we would have um, justice every time. But unfortunately, we live in an imperfect world where um, the justice system itself, June, can actually be the enemy of Aboriginal people in particular. Look, um, again, we need, we need a nationwide um, strategy, you know, adequately resourced anti-racism um, strategy for all Australians, for all Australia, that tackles uh, the issue of structural racism and racism where it does um, raise its head in everyday lives of people. And we, we um, are hearing and, and witnessing more people exposing um, these incidences as well. So um, we should continue to expose um, racism wherever, wherever it occurs. And, um, yeah, I led a nationwide um, engagement process with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls who um, I... You know, I spoke to over 2,000 women and girls, and they reported they had experienced structural and systemic racism. You know, these these um, stories were being shared by, you know, senior women, uh, working women, and young women who are still at um, uh, secondary school, and young women who are mothers. And so, you know, it, it's just horrific that, this level of racism does exist in our country and we need to take it seriously. And um, I'd like to mention and acknowledge that the new Closing the Gap Agreement with the National Peak Organisation um, have highlighted um, racism as one of the areas that they wish to focus on, because racism is a disease. Mm. It, it leads to people being very unwell. And um, for those who, um, you know, um, are being racist and intolerant towards others who are different, um, you know, they need help. They need to, they need to have their attitude, attitudes, their thinking, and what it is that motivates them addressed. 
Where do we where do we start with addressing those motivations of, of people that obviously have so much resentment and hate within them? Do we need some sort of truth-telling mechanism that we can all get around, create a safe environment where people can talk talk about their experiences, but other people can also talk about their prejudices in in a non-threatening, safe environment? Is, is that something that, that we need? And, and does the Uluru Statement from the Heart provide an opportunity to actually get to that point? I believe so. And, and I believe we need to embed truth-telling, cultural safety and trauma-informed training across all services and sectors and, as a matter of urgency, to increase investment into community-based programs that, that will help us, I believe, to heal from intergenerational trauma and sustain and revive our knowledge systems, laws and languages and, and those elements that give us strength, that is part of our right to be Indigenous peoples from from this country. And I uh, also believe that we need systemic reform to ensure human rights protections are uh, embedded in how all institutions interact with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, you mentioned before... June that uh, you released to the AHRC released a report last year the We Yani Yu Tangini uh, report, Women's Voices Report, Securing Our Rights, Securing Our Future in which you mentioned that you spoke to over 2,500 um, women and, and girls um, what did you find? Because that, that's, that's an incredibly extensive consultation for a report that's over 500 pages long what were the main issues that uh, arose from, from those consultations? Well, sadly, there were um, some very um, historic issues that women had raised in 1986, so 34 years ago then. Um, those issues still remain as um, concerns and, and uh, areas for addressing um, now as it was then. But we also um, heard stories of... Um, the wonderful achievements that women and girls are making across the country in their communities, their organisations, and um, we, we continue to see these successes. And the We Yani report puts forward seven overarching recommendations that both tackle the root causes uh, of systemic issues and highlights the alternatives needed to reconstruct enabling system. So women were able to provide their thinking around what change would look like and, and who should be involved and how can women still be a major part of uh, designing uh, those processes and solutions to, to address uh, the issues that impact them daily. So... Um, it's a fantastic report. It's, um, you know, it's a report that elevates the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls from right across the country. You sent the report to the Attorney-General Christian Porter um, last year in December as part of the process of releasing the report. What, have, what if any, noises have government made in relation to responding to the report? Well, the key um, uh, Cabinet Minister that... Um, I had been uh, in conversation with in regards to the report has been Minister Ken Wyatt mm -hmm. 
and um, he was available um, at the launch, at the uh, virtual launch of the um, report. But we held a community launch in Broome at Gulari Media. And um, Minister White has been a strong supporter of the report and uh, has made a commitment to work with us in the implementation of Stage 2, which is around uh, bringing the report and the recommendations to the attention um, other ministers and agencies um, within the federal government, but also within state and territory government. So um, there's, you know, an exciting next stage uh, in regards to the implementation that um, we've now launched into. Uh, one of the one of the central points of the report, June, is to look beyond the cycles of crisis that have come to characterise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lives, and and to define our women and girls in their own image. So to, to speak to them, find out what they want from themselves. After speaking to, like I said, over two thousand five hundred women and girls, what what were the key messages in terms of the way that they want to see themselves and the way they want to want society to see them? Oh, women were very, women and girls were very clear about um, the strengths and the resilience and what it is that enables them to achieve uh, the matters that that they pursue on a on a daily basis in, in their communities. Uh, women want to also have um, a greater understanding by others around um, the fact that they have the solutions to the issues that impact them. They need to be listened to. They need to be at the table negotiating the investments and the way in which they want to be engaged in those processes. So uh, the report carries their voices uh, very strongly and articulates those, um, those matters on their behalf. And uh, we now have a uh, fantastic tool that will will enable women to uh, continue to advocate for the support. But we also have a tool that is capable of uh, assisting and guiding those that um, are needing to work in a far more effective way with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Well, you've put in the, 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 the very, very hard jars to get this report up and happening. If people want to find out more about the report, they can go to humanrights.gov.au and it's uh, pretty fair and centre on, on the website there. Uh, June Oscar, always a pleasure to speak to you, not only for your knowledge, but also because of your accent. I love your accent. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. I don't know. What do I sound like? Well, you sound deadly. That's what you sound like. <laughs> so th- thank you so much for your time. Um, have a good afternoon, Kimberly time, and uh, we'll stay in touch and talk about these issues in the future. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.